Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, how are you? Well, it's the last episode before the old summer break, isn't it? Is it Toy Day? Were we supposed to bring toys? Yeah, we were. I mean, it's funny you should say that because today is the day that my younger son is leaving year six. So it's quite, there's quite a lot of tears. It's like goodbye primary school. Justine and I took him to school for the last time this morning, our last trip to the primary school. How are you feeling? I mean, I don't think it's kind of Lloyd-level waterworks, but it's sort of... So um, you didn't embarrass yourself with hysterical crying? No, I don't think you should be embarrassed. I think we should be praising your emotional... Uh, I don't know. Openness. I've told you before. I think it's uh, it's indicative of an underlying issue. No. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we're sort of in a bit of a gap, and I'm about to go back and pick him up, and then it'll be... that's It's all over Red Rover. Wow. Did they sing, I sing the body electric? No, but it was like, Geron- the thing that set me off was sort of Geronimo flying, etc. was the last song they said. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's too much. It's I, I too just much. Warn you, it's what is it, five years' time for you? Yeah, yeah. I want to give you sort of fair warning. But, but, there's more. There's more. Because as I was on the way back home, running home to come and do some interviews with you, uh, a guy stopped me and said, oh, I'm listening to Reasons to be Cheerful. Aha! I think you paid him to <laughs> lurk on the street. Ed is finally working out his life is like the Truman Show. Exactly. But then, even more exciting, he said, I do just have to say to you, I have an answer for your fox problem. Oh, go on. This is about the foxes getting into your food waste this bin. Would be, this would be a reason to be cheerful if I didn't have another reason to be cheerful. But, but he said, put a bungee cord around the... Um, compost bin and he said the The foxes will bungee jump off of it uh, and he said that the bin collectors are very happy to just take off the bungee cord and that's kind of a good solution because the foxes haven't worked out how to undo a bungee cord presumably yes that would be a scary phase of evolution wouldn't it if foxes work that out presumably in like a hundred thousand years time they will have done but in the meantime 
that seems like a pretty watertight solution, doesn't it? Are you, are you going to give it a go and report back after the summer? What's the downside? Uh, expense of a bungee cord? No, but I mean, we're not talking about sort of 10 karat gold, are we, a bungee cord? No, but you know, it's one of those items. That I, uh, if we were doing prices right, I would have no idea what a bungee cord costs. I would never know. Why, why, anyway, why don't you take a guess and I will Google the first result that comes up. £3.99. On shopping results. Hang on a second. Bungee cord. You say £3.99. Our survey says... Hmm. Three for £3.99. Okay, there you go. Wow. I can give you one. <laughs> Late birthday present you've still been waiting for. I could even give you two bungee cords. One for Christmas, one for my birthday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Early, yeah. early Christmas present. Well, did, did, did you get this gentleman's name? You know, I, he did tell me his name and then I just did, I was so worried about being late for you that I sort of ran off. Then my apologies to gentlemen in question. Yeah. Usually Ed is very good with that kind of thing. But what, what an angel, what an angel in disguise on the streets. I to- totally agree with you. Yeah. So it's been a historic week for our family. It's been a historic week because we had Boris Johnson's last Prime Minister's Questions, which I ended up being in, not because I chose to, but because I was doing cop questions before that. Where would you place it in all the Prime Minister's Question times you've attended over the years? How dramatic did it feel? It didn't feel that dramatic. Um I remember the Tony Blair one. I wasn't there for the David Cameron one. I was a, I was away. Funny that. I don't remember the Theresa May one. And obviously the Gordon Brown one we didn't know because it was before a general election. Did you do any heckling? No, I just felt, just thought, oh, thank goodness you're going. And we should say that even though this is our last recording before the summer, we've been stockpiling conversations over the last few years. We've yeah, put out some yeah. interesting conversations over the summer and uh, we will be doing the same again for the next four weeks, including next week. The first one is a conversation with Professor Brian Cox. Now, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? So this week, Ed, we're very much on your home turf in the environmental space. And we're looking at plastic pollution. Now, we first did an episode on plastic back in 2018, but we thought it was you know, a good one to revisit and see how work on the issue has progressed. Every year, we produce about 400 million tonnes of plastic waste. And only a, a small proportion of it gets recycled. Most of it ends up in landfill or being incinerated or ends up in the ocean. So, we're looking at the issue in a slightly different way this week, um, and we're, we're going to take an overview of what's happening internationally, then nationally, and then at local level. We're talking to Zainab Sadan from the WWF, Jill Farrell from Zero Waste Scotland, and Rachel Edwards from Surfers Against Sewage in Port Talbot. It's a really good conversation, really important. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is we were unexpectedly, outside of the podcast reunited on the radio the other day. I tell you, it was scary. <laughs> so so I had no idea. Let's talk about it from your point of view, and then I'll talk about it from yeah. my point of view. So so um, the Today programme on Radio 4 got in touch quite uh, late on in the evening after tea time, and it was when we were having the um, the extreme temperatures last week. And they asked if my wife and I could do some kind of light piece about what it is to be parents of a young child and the way that we were coping with the temperatures. So 
we recorded a thing. I sent it to them. I ended up finishing it quite late and I went to bed and slept in. So I didn't put the radio on in the morning to listen to it. However, and let me talk about it from my point of view. I was doing a media round, as it's known, about the extreme heat and what it says about the climate crisis and why we need to tackle it and add our resilience as a country. And so I go into the Today Programme studio, I think it's my third interview. And as I'm putting on the headphones, I hear this sort of what I think is Jeff Lloyd. And I think, okay, it's something about Jeff Lloyd. And I thought, okay, well, that's obvious. I've just misheard. But then I sort of think I took the headphones off for reasons I can't now remember. And then I put them back on again. And it was like you and Sarah and the person who was with me, I was sort of looking at each other and I was thinking, hang on, have we tuned into the wrong channel? Are we on the right channel? Have we, have they switched the channel? It was sort of slightly, I don't quite know why. I just kind of, I thought, just on the Today programme, this is unusual. It is unusual. It's not, it's not a regular it's occurrence like, for me. I just had a sort of, if they call it cognitive dissonance. And then I thought, well, obviously Jeff is on the Today programme. Anyway, then I sort of recovered. Uh, but anyway, it was great to hear you. I thought it was, and it was a really funny segment, which ended with your son wearing socks with sandals. Yeah, in the heat, I was desperately trying to persuade him, please just take your socks off. Don't just go to school in sandals. And It shows he's got like individuality and determination. And uh, no fashion sense like me. <laughs> anyway, so that was uh, that was fun. It was very good to hear you. People texting me and saying, uh, I just heard you followed by Ed on the radio, which I had no idea was going to happen. Um, so, yeah, that was fun. So what was your reason to be cheerful? So my reason to be cheerful is I went to the Sam Fender concert. It was uh, banging, correct? I, I believe that's, uh, that's an expression. It was at Finsbury Park. It was... Absolutely great. Uh, I wore some sunglasses just to, partly for the sun, but also because I thought... You wanted to be incognito. You didn't want... A little bit incognito because I was with Justine and it was like, I think it's just not nice to us to be out. And da, da, da. But then it got dark, so I took off the sunglasses, went to get a beer at the bar, as I think you do at gigs. And the person serving at the bar said to me, oh, my goodness, I just love you. It's just great. Um, I said, oh, would you fancy a selfie? Uh, she said yes. She said, and I so <laughs> they're supposed do. to ask you. You know that. Oh, interesting. And then she said, "You're my unusual crush on." I think it was Hinge or something. So I, I was very flattered, obviously, that she was so such a fan. But then I got to thinking, Jeff, about the word unusual <laughs> and the work it is doing. You see, if imagine if she'd said to me, "Yes, you're my crush," or "You're my." celebrity or z-list celebrity or b-list celebrity or c-list celebrity or well-known person crushed that would have been unalloyed unmitigated no double edging no not double-edged in any way unusual crush just to help me out here i'm gonna be honest the word unusual i'm gonna be honest at this stage in my life just to be objectified as a crush would be enough right okay okay i think you should take it I i should take it I shouldn't be worried about the word unusual. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start our conversation, we're joined by Zainab Sadan, who is Regional Plastics Policy Coordinator for Africa at the WWF. Zainab, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Ed. And you're joining us from Cape Town. Can you start by laying out the scale of the global plastics problem and give us some headline facts and figures? Sure. The plastic 
problem really started back in the 1950s when plastics entered into production. And we've just escalated that exponentially. There's over 300 million tons of plastics that are produced every year. And most of that becomes waste. And there are some predictions that actually mentions that plastic pollution can triple by 2040. So in the coming decades, if we continue business as usual, we are really in for just a disaster, really, in terms of the plastic pollution crisis becoming more visible. But even the invisible aspects, which, and this is more the microplastic pollution, where research is starting to show we ingesting it in the drinking water, in some of the foods we eat, it's in our soil, so it's affecting some agricultural processes as well. So all of these are really just adding to the complexity of the issue and the understanding of it. Talk to us, Zainab, about the role of rich countries like the UK in this plastics problem as against developing countries. Can you give us a sense of that? Thank you for actually pointing this out, because when it comes to the plastic pollution problem, it is transboundary, meaning that the plastics value chain cuts across the national borders and jurisdictions. And when I mean that, it's the plastic raw material extraction, which is fossil fuels or mostly fossil fuels, gets extracted in one country. Then it gets exported and then it's manufactured in a different country. And these are mainly from the industrialized economies, right? So as you mentioned, rich or developed countries where the plastic products are produced. Developing countries are largely net importers of products, and then they don't have a say really as to how the product is designed, whether they can manage the end of life of that product, meaning the waste management infrastructure, the recycling infrastructure, the sorting and collection infrastructure is just not there. And so we're beginning to see a picture that is highly unequal. We see that developing nations, even though they produce very little, they are seen as the biggest polluters of plastic globally. However, it is a result of the fact that the plastic value chain just cuts across borders. There's a lack of producer accountability and just generally in the global governance infrastructure. And I think it is worth underlining, Zainab, isn't it, what you said, which is some people might think, well, plastics is a bad issue, but it's separate from fossil fuels. But actually, about 3% of the world's fossil fuels production is used for plastics. And to give people a sense of this, this is a significant contributor to, to the climate crisis directly. Yes, exactly. And you rightfully said not many people make that connection where most of the feedstocks of plastics come from fossil fuels. And also what we're starting to see is a big portion of petrochemical companies, especially in the US and China, are starting to see plastics as a diversification strategy. So investing more into plastic production infrastructure in the coming years. This is also starting to see as a huge contributor to future plastic production. That's all quite scary. Now, there was a recent resolution agreed by the UN Environment Assembly, which I believe took place in Nairobi, on plastic pollution, which sounds like maybe that's a good thing. But Tell us a little bit about this, because it turns out to be a little bit woolly, does it? Yes and no. So it is a good thing. And this is a result of over four years of work of not just WWF, but 
all the civil society organizations working on this issue and advocating for global governance on this issue. So it was a huge celebratory moment um, in Nairobi. It was really an honor to be there, to come together with decision makers, especially after two years of not being able to meet in person. So it was really quite something. And the ambition that's kind of stated in the resolution that was adopted unanimously by UN member states. It's the international legally binding instrument to end plastic pollution. And so this really gives us this quite ambitious goal to move towards. And the resolution also outlines that we aim to negotiate this instrument over the next two years, so ending 2024, which also gives us quite an ambitious timeline. And so those are the good points about it. I think when it comes to what we need to keep an eye on is really to ensure we maintain that level of ambition throughout the negotiations. This is just to start negotiations. And so that doesn't mean countries have signed a treaty. This will happen only at the end of 2024 when we now need to get countries to actually commit. Right. The details of the resolution, it's quite broad in scope. We are starting to see that some countries are skeptical of just signing yet another commitment that... For some example, developing countries can't necessarily afford or don't see themselves as having the necessary resources, the technologies to achieve those commitments that they've already set. And now adding just more to their plate. So where do you want to be in two years time at the end of 24? What do you want to see as the concrete actions that come out of the eventual treaty? So first and foremost, I think we need to have an agreement on what are the most problematic, unnecessary and harmful plastic products that are currently on the market and ensure that we have interventions such as global bans or global phasing out of these products. Single-use plastics is definitely up there in terms of the most problematic. So we want those to be addressed with the highest priority. And we need to ensure then that whatever alternatives or alternative business models replace these materials, which can include things like reuse, which we are starting to see, refill schemes. It can include alternative materials as well, but we need to be careful that we don't replace one problem with another. It can also mean designing for recycling. For example, having global product design standards. If this cannot be achieved, then we need to look at safely managing waste products at the end of it. I think I'm right in saying, aren't I? And this is something to be quite cautious about because we all talk about recycling. But I think in the UK, only about 9% of our plastic is recycled. Yeah, and globally, that number looks very similar and even less. (laughs) So uh, recycling is definitely not the solution. It's both the fact that materials aren't designed for recycling. So we have multi-layer materials like our the food bags for pets. Those, those are multi-layer materials that just cannot be recycled uh, economically or even technically. Then you have the problem of recycling economics are really just bad when it comes to what makes the most business sense. So what we find, and just talking from my experience in South Africa, is that a recycled material is like two 
tens of degrees more expensive than virgin material, which is our fossil fuels. And so that's a scary fact. And so, you know, when your product manufacturers or your packaging manufacturers see that, they're going to go with the cheapest option. What action are you seeing take place in Africa on plastics directly? What, what action is being taken by countries? You know, most African countries have some sort of ban of the plastic bag. And this is banning on imports, banning on manufacturing, banning on sale and production. Unfortunately, though, either they are seeing cross-border illegal imports into their country, but also we see an enforcement issue. We're also seeing that the bans do not necessarily pertain to the informal markets, for example. I mean, it's such an interesting point that I think we should pause on it, which is that African countries are ahead of rich Western countries in the actions they're taking in terms of like bans. I mean, we don't have a ban on the use of plastic bags in the UK, certainly not. We have a, a, a small tax on it. That is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think that it's it's quite interesting to see the success stories, but also the learnings from these countries who have tried some sort of ban or some sort of phasing out or even taxes. I think that the plastic bag has really been seen as the face of plastic pollution in, a, in many African countries and even beyond just African countries. And so I do see that there is both regional sharing of once one country tries a particular piece of legislation, another country also would try that, especially if they have bilateral relations. We're also starting to see these sub-regional and regional initiatives taking place, um, which I think Africa is quite good at. Even in the negotiations, we see African countries negotiating as one block or one or the Africa group of negotiators. And I think that this is quite interesting because we're starting to see plastic pollution as a regional problem and not a national problem alone. Let's sort of end by asking this. You obviously painted quite a dramatically bad picture at the beginning. Do you feel optimistic that we can get change in the international community? You've talked about the long road to the decision that was made in Nairobi, but give us a bit of hope here. I must say, just personally, the optimism comes and goes. But you caught me at a good time because just after Nairobi, after that moment, I think it really energized a lot of us who have been working in this space. And now not just talking for WWF, but there were more than a thousand groups, um, indigenous peoples, informal waste sector, civil society organizations working on this and calling for a treaty. And so it definitely injected us with a spirit of hope and some sort of optimism. I think that we know enough to tackle this challenge now. We know that we need to act urgently. We know that we have researchers working on trying to fill the gaps, the current research gaps, for example. And we have the support of majority of governments, I think. And so that is something for us to keep in mind going forward and that we're not in this alone. We're in this together. And I, I guess that's the spirit of a treaty, right, is that we want this global collective movement to address this problem. It's been great to talk to you, Zainab. You've provided such a clear overview with some optimism about the situation. Zainab Sadan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To take this conversation closer to home, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Jill Farrell, who is Director for Evidence and Insights at Zero Waste Scotland. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. We've heard from Zainab about the global issue of plastics. Could you tell us maybe a little bit about some of the things that you're doing in Scotland? Sure. So the deposit return scheme is part of the circular economy response to how we treat materials as a country, as a nation and internationally. So in a linear economy, you take materials, you make something, you use it, and then you dispose of it. The whole purpose of the circular economy is to make sure that every material that we consume has as an extended of life as possible. By introducing the deposit return scheme, we will reduce emissions by nearly 160,000 tonnes of carbon per annum. So that is the equivalent of taking 83,000 cars off the road. So from a carbon reduction perspective, this is a massive impact. There's different ways of tackling this problem. You know, we've got a tax on plastic bags. I think it's in place across the UK, I think I'm right in saying. Zero Waste Scotland introduced it. Zero Waste Scotland (laughs) introduced it. How much of a part can the deposit return scheme play Because recycling is clearly one answer. And how much should we just not be using plastic at all? So I think there's two things there that's really interesting. So the whole thing about plastics is plastics has a role in society. It's here to stay, but we've just got to be a lot more conscious, a lot more mindful about how we use that. So one of the, the classic examples that's used when people talk about plastic is a cucumber. If you have an unwrapped cucumber, that will deteriorate a lot faster than a plastic-wrapped cucumber. And the environmental impact of the degrading cucumber is greater than the impact, arguably, of the cling film that's used to protect it. So it's looking at what are the alternatives to single-use plastics. I think that's the the area where we really need to concentrate. And even some of the multiple-use products for their potential alternatives So that horrible fact that's out there that every single toothbrush we've all ever owned still exists somewhere because they're made of plastic, they don't degrade. Oh, my God, God, that's awful. They're somewhere in a landfill. That's nightmarish. Is that right? It's absolutely true. So the bristles and handles, every single one that all of us have ever owned. That is terrible, Jill. It's shocking. So there are alternative materials out there now. People are using bamboo handles instead and using different fabric for the actual head of the toothbrush that I saw online the other day there's new alternative material electric toothbrushes coming out so the the really powerful thing is the more we talk about this the more the industry starts to innovate 
because there's demand from consumers to alternatives, but there's also a need because the, the price of oil is going up and up and up. So the cost of making plastic using virgin materials will continually increase as high quality recycled plastic becomes more available then the cost of that will decrease and make it more attractive. So you mentioned Iron Brew earlier, they've got a new campaign out saying they're no longer virgins because they're not using any virgin plastic in their bottles anymore. Lots of the consumer-facing companies are looking for alternatives. You asked what difference can deposit return scheme make, Ed? Nobody wants to live in a society where everything is legislated for. But one of the really powerful things about the deposit return scheme is it starts to change people's behaviour. They start to think differently because what was previously something that they would consume the product, throw in the bin, or hopefully the recycling, now literally has a value attributed to it. So you would no longer think of it necessarily as waste, but think of it as a material. And starting to change people's thinking around all single-use items is where we're headed So in and of itself, it's exciting, it's interesting, and it's going to create a big difference in terms of carbon reduction in Scotland and litter. But the whole behaviour change piece behind it, I think, is a really exciting part of it. So let's talk about how it will work in practice. So I go and buy a fizzy drink. And because I'm talking to you, I'm thinking I am brew. I hope I'm not stereotyping there. <laughs> but I love an iron brew. So, so what happens from the from the minute I, I go and, and buy my bottle of fizzy pop? So, when you go to buy your bottle of fizzy pop, you will pay twenty pence deposit as part of that that transaction. You go along the street, you enjoy your fizzy drink, and then you can take that bottle, that empty container, back to any retailer. And they will then, if you, when you hand it over, they'll scan it and you can either get a token, 20 pence piece, or you can donate your 20 pence to charity. So I'm dealing with a human being here because I've seen these things in Sweden. They used to, I used to spend a lot of time over there and they'd have these amazing things in every supermarket where you could feed all your plastic bottles into them and you'd get a little ticket. It would give you a discount on your shopping. But with this, you're interacting with people rather than machines. Not necessarily. That's Each individual retailer will decide whether because of volumes, because of available space, they want to do manual take back or they want to install what you're describing, which is a reverse vending machine. Yes. So in a classic vending machine, you put in money, you get out product. A reverse vending machine, you put in product, you get out cash or cash equivalent. Oh, that's a great, I've never heard the reverse vending machine. That's great. Reverse yeah. vending machine, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, this deposit return scheme is not a new concept. It's in place in 45 jurisdictions around the world at the moment. The Netherlands, Scandinavia, Australia, various states in the U.S., have introduced it over a number of years. I remember as a child, and this will carbon date me for anyone from Scotland, but there used to be, Iron Brew was one of them, and there was another company that literally would give you cash when you took the bottles back. Yeah, I remember that. So guess what? All the wee kids were running around collecting bottles and getting extra pocket money. And was it a difficult thing to land? Was there much resistance to it? Yes. From whom? Producers, retailers, wholesalers, um, everybody who's affected by it. It's changing people's business models. 
And actually, we've had to push back the introduction date by a year. Scottish government has had to push it back by a year because of COVID. Brexit has had an impact as well in terms of being able to uh, get access to different pieces of infrastructure, such as the reverse vending machines, for example. So all the timelines have been pushed back. It's very popular with the Scottish population. We've been out, we've been consulting on this. I was personally standing in Stornoway, Speaking to people three years ago about deposit return scheme, 77% of the people that we engaged with said that they were fully supportive of the broad DRS. Actually, they wanted to push the deposit level higher, but the testing we did to make sure that it didn't exclude people with lower disposable income meant that we actually brought the deposit down to a lower level of 20 pence. It's hard to change all your systems It's actually a bit more difficult because of the devolved status of Scotland for some legislation, but not everything. So it's it's very exciting. It's very complicated. But when it comes out for the consumer, it will be really straightforward. And that's the main thing. Help people to do the right thing and make it really easy for them to do it. I was quite struck talking to um, Zainab just earlier. A number of African countries have done what I don't think many European nations have done this, which is to ban single-use plastic bags. Is that the kind of thing that Zero Waste Scotland is thinking about? So the Scottish Government has introduced a single-use plastics directive and a ban has been introduced on single-use items such as cutlery, plates, other beverage containers. The Scottish Government is looking at a charge on single-use drinks cups. I mean, most of us are in a really good place pre-COVID of taking our reusable drinks cups in for your charge of coffee but because of covid a lot of people got out of that habit so it's encouraging that habit again the the reduction of consumption is really the key thing we've got to stop consuming as much stuff particularly single-use stuff and you know that that's a difficult message at cop 26 one of the really strong messages that came out which was really humbling was a representative um, of one of the african nations was saying that the global north is prioritizing its convenience at the expense of lives in the global south that sounds like a really dramatic message but it's absolutely true because you know net zero is great net zero is absolutely a target to aim for but one of the unintended consequences of net zero is that there's an increased demand for materials to create the infrastructure. So something like 70% of the infrastructure for net zero achievement in the global north hasn't yet been manufactured. So that's resulting in things like a 4,000% increase in demand for lithium for all of these rechargeable car batteries. Lithium's a really nasty product. So rather than all of us rushing out to buy electric cars instead of petrol cars, which is great in terms of net zero, We need to be, from a circular economy perspective, what we should be thinking about is sharing cars, is having access to your car clubs, etc., and just using a car when you need it. So south of the border here in England, where both Ed and I are at the moment, we're not getting an equivalent scheme uh, until 2024. If there are any policymakers listening to this at the moment in England, what's uh, the advice from the future? Uh, Get a wiggle on. So uh, DEFRA put out the consultation in 2019, but they've not yet published the response to that consultation, as far as I'm aware. The England scale will not be aligned with Scotland in that it won't include glass. So that makes things very difficult for manufacturers, retailers. But also from an environmental perspective, it really doesn't make sense in terms of carbon reduction. 
but absolutely get a wiggle on because, you know, we're doing this with a population of over 5 million people. It's a much, much bigger scheme that will be required south of the border. And it is very complex. Were there any difficulties in getting this over the line that you would be able to say with hindsight, oh, here's a thing, here's a way of avoiding yourself a lot of hassle? Again, engaging the public, I think, is really important. And uh, particularly groups which may view themselves as being socially disadvantaged or geographically disadvantaged. So we did an islands impact assessment to see how you could get the materials on and off of remote island communities. What we aim is that it should be as easy to return a bottle as it was to buy it. It should be as easy to return a can as it was to buy it. And that's simple to say, but in reality will be complex to deliver. Jill Farrell, it's really interesting to hear what you're doing at Zero Waste Scotland. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure and I love your podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. Great to see you. Well, we're going to round off this conversation. Where else but in Port Talbot with Rachel Edwards from Surfers Against Sewage. Hello, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. How is Port Talbot today? Port Talbot is very, very sunny, very warm. So I'm enjoying this weather long, may it continue. (laughs) Now, I I should ask a rather parochial question, Rachel, which is that I'm a swimmer. I swim in sort of, well, not cold water, warm water at the moment in the local ponds. I'm not a surfer. Is Port Talbot the place to start? It's pretty good. We've got some good beginner waves. I'm an aspiring surfer. I can, I'm can. i also like you, I'm a more of a cold water dipper. So I tend to go in and dip and bob around. Love bodyboarding. I can catch a wave quite happily on that. But uh, the standing up on the surfboard is <laughs> a bit more tricky. I think you should definitely give it a go, Ed. And I'd, I'd, I'd happily come with you. I wouldn't join in myself, but I'd, I'd stand on the beach. Film it. Encouraging you in and filming it, yes, for, for social media. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feared that might be the case. We'd love to have you down at Aberavon Beach anytime. Have you ever tried it? Me? Yeah. No. Not that I remember, anyway. Bodyboarding, maybe, but I don't think I'm coordinated enough. Jeff, what do you think? I don't think you are, and that's why I really want you to try it. No. <laughs> if you can bodyboard, you can surf. You just lay down on the surfboard. You haven't got to stand up. It's still catching a wave regardless. So, um, so, so tell us about Surfers Against Sewage, um, and specifically the campaign for Port Talbot. How, how did you come to be involved in that? So we moved here in September 2020 from the city. We're living in Birmingham. Always wanted to be by the sea, living by the sea with our family. And every time we go to the coast, we would always pick up plastic. Whenever we went anywhere, we'd always pick up plastic from the beach. So when we moved here, I knew that I wanted to get involved with Surface Against Sewage because they campaign against plastic pollution. And it's something that's just really close to my heart. So as soon as we moved, I signed up to be a rep and became the regional rep for Portel. But I have a colleague as well, Alan, who I do alongside. But yes, we literally just started in September 2020, and it's uh, hit the ground running, really. (laughs) How how did you become that person who always picks up plastic? Because I'll be honest, I want to be that person, but it doesn't always occur to me. How did it become important to you? I've always been really passionate about wildlife, specifically marine life. And I just think, especially being Midlands-based, living landlocked my whole life, I just have such an affinity for the sea, such a love for the sea, and I want to protect it as much as I possibly can. So it's just something that's been inbuilt in me, really. And and how big is this campaign within Port Talbot? How big is the the problem and, and what action's been taken there? 
Sure. So in Port Albert, we have two rivers that feed our bay. So we've got the River Avon and the River Neath. So we have an awful lot of plastic pollution that comes down from our rivers. The general plastic pollution problem, obviously, as you know, is worldwide. But because we do have two rivers, I feel that we get an awful lot, especially from sewer overflow. We do get a lot of tourists leave their rubbish on the beach as well, which is a real nightmare and a really sad, sad thing for us and something that we work to to combat. But of course, you can't pick your way out of plastic pollution. It is something that we're trying to tackle on a global scale really just in terms of the campaigns that we do so surface against sewage have got things like the million mile beach clean so we've been part of that we've held those on Aberavon beach whereby the idea is we get a million people to clean a mile of it might be beach might be river even mountains if they're nowhere near the ocean so just trying to encourage people to pick up as much litter of all types across the UK those campaigns are really important and they've been really successful for us here and Surfers Against Sewage in Port Talbot won an award for, it's a plastic free award for best community movement in 2021. What do you think it is about the work you're doing in Port Talbot that set you apart? When we started as a rep, when I began being a regional rep, we actually had a huge plastic crisis on our beach. It wasn't just us. We had it in Devon as well. And there were nappy containers that got spilt in the ocean and they washed up the contents, washed up across all of Cornwall, Devon and parts of South Wales. So that kind of kicked us off, really. It was a challenging time because it was locked down so people couldn't flood to help. So we really relied upon locals who were literally doing that mile a day exercise on the beach to help us clear the the waste. So we were able to mobilise the community to shift tonnes and tonnes and tonnes of plastic from Aberavon Beach and um, other beaches along along our stretch. The council were brilliant in that as well. They employed tractors to help us because we couldn't literally carry it, it was so heavy. So that kind of kicked us off really in terms of putting Surface Against Sewage Port Talbot on the map. And then it's just gone from strength to strength since then, really. And so Tell us, Rachel, who comes to the beach cleans that you organise and and what do they say about them afterwards? We have monthly beach cleans that we organise once a month. We have a really big group of people who range from little people on scooters with their parents right through to people who just come with their earphones in to go and have a bit of mindfulness on the beach and some exercise. Uh, so it's a really wide range of uh, of people that come along. There's a big group called Aberavon Beach Cleaners in our area as well. So they take part and a lot of them are dog walkers. So a lot of people who are regularly on the beach who regularly see the problem. They tend to be the bulk of our volunteers. But I would definitely say the demographic is younger. We're seeing a lot of families, a lot of parents and children coming along, um, which I love. I love having the kids along for the litter picks and stuff. It's awesome. This is obviously an incredibly important thing that you're doing. What do you think the limits of these individual acts such as beach cleanups are? And and what would you like to see from local authorities, businesses and other people to, 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 if you like, prevent the plastics ending up on the beaches? Yeah, I said earlier, we we can't pick out our way out of the problem, of course, which is a real challenge. The biggest thing we can do on the grassroots is make people aware of what's going on. But I think in terms of what we can petition local authorities to do is using reusable non-plastic products, so not the single use. Things like that have made a big difference, but we're still seeing like the plastic tops on top of, you know, coffee cups, polystyrene trays for takeaways, especially on the beach. I think I would petition local authorities to try and get in the deposit return schemes if possible so we can start getting a circular economy so we don't have the single-use plastics being made and certainly being distributed by local businesses. In our podcast Utopia, the Jeffocracy, we we want clean beaches. And so if we were to appoint you as, as chief plastic buster... What would your, what do you think the first thing you'd be doing in office would be? I'd stop single-use plastics being made, non-essential ones. Obviously, there's some things that have to be made. 
in the hospitals and clinical environments predominantly where you have to have sterile instruments, utensils, that kind of thing. But yeah, I would just stop, stop single use manufacture wherever possible. We've got enough in our system already. <laughs> and has this left you feeling optimistic about the future? Because it occurred to me that you're seeing both the best and worst of people. So you're seeing people wanting to help and no more is that visible than in, in children who get it straight away. And you're also just encountering the fact that people are just leaving stuff for other people to deal with. It's a, it's a constant battle, especially summertime. So we, we're getting a lot more visitors now to the beach. Um, and even yesterday, I went for a run yesterday evening along the prom. And bless them, people have bagged their rubbish up, but they've left it on the steps on the beach. They didn't take it up to the bins. And you just think, it's too, oh, it's too much goodness. effort. Too much effort yeah. to take it to a bin. It's crazy. I mean, they, they take the rubbish down. They take the picnics and the drinks and all the things down. You think it's heavier when you took it down. Just just take it back. And there are literally, there's bins every, gosh, 100 yards along our beach. There really isn't any excuse it can be demoralising. There are times when I've gone down with the kids. We've got three children and we love, love living by the coast. And this is completely our dream. And it's heartbreaking. And they go down and then they look and they look at me and go, Mum, what are we going to do? And I'm like, we grab a bag and we pick it up. And that is just day in, day out. It's not just me. Like I said, there's hundreds and hundreds of people doing that across our beach alone, never mind the entire coast. So it is a constant problem. But I think even when the kids have come to me with a bag full of rubbish and plastic and they're like but there's going to be more tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, but that's one less bag that's in the water. It's one less bag that's going to affect the marine life. We've got a pod of 10 dolphins in the bay at the minute. Um, So it's become even more of a thing that gets very personal then, I think. And that's the thing that I love most about having the children come in. They're in the water surfing and then they see plastic floating by and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, we need to do something about that. So it's a constant challenge. It always will be, but we can make a difference. Every little bag makes a difference. Well, Rachel, it's incredibly inspiring what, you, what you're doing. I was going to say long may it continue, but hopefully the, the need for it will decrease and uh, you won't be needing to do it. But it's, uh, it's fantastic what you're doing in Surface Against Sewage generally. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Well, what did you think? Well, I found it very interesting because it felt a bit like a whistle-stop tour, zooming in from uh, Zainab's perspective the continent of Africa and, and how our behaviour affects the global south, which is just terrible. But then you hear about some of the measures that they're taking out of necessity, just being uh, so much more ambitious than what we're doing here. And then zooming down to a national level, I really enjoyed talking to Jill, not only because um, I like putting plastic bottles into those deposit return machines. But I think these things, yes, there's an economic value that you can uh, calculate in terms of uh, it's the equivalent of taking this many cars off the road. But I think any legislation and any scheme like this really goes a long way in shifting people's attitudes about something like plastics and, and their role in it. And then on individual action, as I said to Rachel, I feel that what they're doing there in Port Talbot, you see both the best and the worst of people. And it's really encouraging that the community are getting on board with it. I must say, I feel I'm really glad we did the episode. I think, you know, maybe we didn't emphasize this in, in our interview, but you know, this is something that the public care about a lot. You know, all of the work that David Attenborough and others did really connected people to this issue in, in a very massive way. And it's one of these issues, again, where I feel like public policy, certainly in England, seems quite far behind the public, actually. 
And you know what the other thing that was really striking about the conversation with Zainab is public policy in many developing countries, well, she was talking about um, the continent of Africa, is actually ahead of rich nations. And then she talked really interestingly about the negotiations. I think overall the conclusion I reach is that actually the activism of surfers against sewage and all that is really important as individual action. But but in addition, you know, pressure on governments, including our governments, on this issue is absolutely crucial, both for biodiversity and also to tackle the climate crisis. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on the podcast this week, thoughts about uh, plastics, thoughts about uh, ideas for future episodes, you can find us on cheerfulpodcast.com. I talked about the problems with my neck when I was swimming breaststroke. And boy, Jeff, did it produce the goods. Does it make you feel good that people care so deeply about your neck health? Yes. Hi, Ed. Uh, This one comes from Hattie Brock. Hi, Ed, you're actually my mum's neighbour and we've chatted a few times. I'm messaging about your head under the water dilemma and sore neck. I agree it's not good to swim with your head out of the water. So learning front crawl, that seems quite difficult, would be best or simply have to swim breaststroke properly. That sounds easier. Some goggles and a swim cap will help. No need for a nose clip if you breathe correctly. He doesn't. He doesn't. No. My friend Tom is a lifeguard at the pond and he knows you from when you used to swim at Kentish Town. I suggest you ask him for swimming tips. He's great and tried to help me improve my front call, which was once, to put it mildly, unique. But I've been informed it has improved. <laughs> do you know Tom the lifeguard? I'm sure I do, yeah. But really, you've only got eyes for Dan. No, no, I do know Tom the lifeguard, in fact, because uh, we've talked about the sort of comparison of indoor pool at Kentish Town and the outdoor pond. So this is, this is useful tips and there's more to come, isn't there? Hmm, a little insight into your small talk skills. This comes from Tony Cox, another one, Ed, yeah. Um, he says, I was in a state of disbelief when I heard Ed say that he swims a breaststroke with his head out of the water. No wonder his neck hurts. I always thought that only women of a certain vintage did that to keep their permed hair from getting wet. I do truly admire the fact that he swims all year round, as that takes some fortitude, but maybe it would be wise to get some tuition on the stroke. There are real advantages to the experience of swimming with the head down during exhalation and full body extension of the glide. The head down position allows the body to be much more parallel with the surface and hence gives you more impetus to forward motion. I've gone on too long. Get help, please. Um, no, Tony says, I somehow think your friend, the lifeguard, Dan, should have uh, mentioned that to you already. Well, I think there's a bit of an etiquette. Dan can't start saying to me, listen, your breaststroke's terrible, can he? Is it like um, Star Trek? That he's got a directive that he's not supposed to intervene. Yeah, I don't think he can sort of say there's a real problem with your with your." Um, I did, by the way, I, I was swimming recently and um, uh, it, the neck problem hasn't yet recurred. Although, I, I, So I was trying to put my head more in the water. I actually don't think it is that difficult to put your head in the water. But basically, I never learned properly how to swim proper stroke. I think that's the part of the problem. Mm. Yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to pour cold water or indeed like 18, 19 degree yeah, water. 22 on your, actually. 22 yeah. degree yeah. water on your bromance with yeah. Dan. But I can't help but think that if you had seen him doing something that was potentially harmful to his health and well-being you would have had a quiet word out of compassion and yet he doesn't 
seem to feel the same way about you. Leave Dan out of this. Right. The next one comes from Robert Wielden. Uh, It's also about breaststroke technique. And I think Robert is like, I'll see you ahead in the water and I'll raise you. Hired swimming coach here. The video course below should help with your breaststroke neck pain. Notice how the swimmer in the video keeps their neck aligned when breathing. Hope this helps. All the best, Rob. And indeed, if you go to the um, video... Uh, Which is on totalimmersionacademy.com. Yes. Breaststroke made Breaststroke easy. made easy. Do less, swim better. I don't want to be difficult, but the person in the video doesn't seem to take their head ever out of the water. How do they breathe? Are they okay? Are they moving? What? Yeah, they are moving. Oh, okay. Well, do you think they've maybe got some sort of amphibious sort of <laughs> powers? They've got gills. Yeah. I don't think I'm very well coordinated, so I just think this is just really, you know, and it's also like bad habits. You know, if you, it's just if you do something badly for a long time, it's very hard to then learn a habit of doing it not badly. You have a lot of willpower and determination, though. Okay, I'll try. May I recommend uh, Nora Ephron's I Feel Bad About My Neck? What's that? It's an essay collection, I just thought. Oh, okay. It's nothing to do with swimming, but the title right. felt appropriate. Okay, okay. And finally, this comes from Jacob, Jacob Greenhouse. The subject is Stoned Ed. What? He begins by quoting you. You're totally right. You're totally right. Totally right, dude. I don't know if if Ed was hanging out with the Lib Dems or had a confident hangover, but his energy during last week's intro was incredible. Is there something you're not telling us? I'm left slightly speechless. Did you think I had sort of big energy? There's just been a slight shift in you since you went to Glastonbury. Hmm. Anything you want to tell us? Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. So we're, we're not going to be... Well, we are going to be around. We are going to be around. I mean, we're, we're properly around. This just... We're, we're, it's a sort of summer episodes, but we've prided ourselves on that we were on 200 and whatever it is, 50-something, and we've never missed a week. No, and... Uh, We're not about to start now. Absolutely. Keep subscribed. You're still going to be fed on your feed. I am feeling that annual sadness that I haven't been invited to join the Miller Bands for the summer. As the funds to your Cunninghams. Mm. We're decamping for some of it to Edinburgh because Sarah is doing a show at the Fringe. Fantastic. It's her third uh, solo stand-up hour. It's called Hard Feelings. It's on at the Pleasance. If you're, uh, If you're going to be in Edinburgh for the festivals, do make sure you you see it. It's really good. Honestly, I can strongly recommend it. I've been to see Sarah's show. It's a bit naughty. Mm. Um, um, naughty but nice. This one is even naughtier um, and perhaps even nicer. I'm sure it is. Should we thank our guests? Yes. So let's thank Zainab Sadan, Jill Farrell and Rachel Edwards. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dents. Ed Seed composed the music and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been an unusual crush. He's been making unusual appearances on the home service. (laughs) And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.